Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a major... 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This idea of Horshaks is not... Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Get a little closer to the radio and put on that thinking cap that your parents often referred to. We're going to think critically and biblically this hour, and we're going to think specifically about faith journeys and why, if you look at the data that's out there and being in the nation's capital, I kind of think we live and breathe data on a regular basis. But particularly, I turn to Pew, I turn to Barna, and if people sort of define themselves where they're at spiritually, why are we seeing such a marked increase in a category called none? And I'm not referring to women who wear particular garments. I mean, N-O-N-E, none. And the paradox is, by the way, a lot of people, a majority will call themselves spiritual, but not religious. Well, that doesn't surprise me. God has placed eternity in our heart. We're fingerprinted to seek God. So that doesn't surprise me. But sometimes questions, unanswered questions, nag and nag and nag and turn people off, have them back away from the cross, turn their back on what was their faith journey and decided that it's just not worth it. If you met someone like that, would you know how to answer the nagging questions that they had on their faith journey? That's what we're going to talk about this hour with one of my favorite people. I just love the way Randy Newman thinks. He's brilliant, but he's also passionate about people, and he loves the Word of God. He is Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. He was formerly on staff with Crew, ministering in and near Washington, D.C. He's the author of multiple books, including Questioning Evangelism and Bringing the Gospel Home. If Randy writes it, I will read it because it causes me to go deeper in my walk with the Lord. His latest book is called Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. Now, with so much, quote, deconstruction, a word 
by the way, in full disclosure, I I loathe in its application. But I want to go to the cause, not the verbiage. Why are people backing away from what the truths are that can be found in Scripture, what a relationship with Jesus Christ is, what it looks like? And so if we're seeing this kind of drift, I want to be in the midst of that. I want to find out what's causing people to drift. Are there particular questions that we don't know how to answer that are all part of the ups and downs of spiritual journeys? And that's really what Randy's book is all about, particularly, again, the subtitle, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. Randy, the warmest of welcomes. Thank you, thank you, thank you for once again allowing me the privilege of just sitting and being with you and learning so much from you. And this up and down in the terrains were, were not words chosen by accident. You start out this book by telling me something about you I didn't know before, which is you actually have done some mountain climbing. And you talk about (laughs) the fact that going from the bottom to the top is very rarely, if ever, a direct route. It is a fabulous word picture for that journey of up and down and up and down that occurs in so many spiritual lives. Talk to me about that. Well, it's great to be with you again, Janet. Thanks so much. I, I, I really hope the listeners don't think I'm a mountain climber. <laughs> that's, that's, that would not be fair. Um, I, I, I've made a few hikes, um, but that one particular hike that I talked about at the beginning was just a, a perfect illustration for me with the importance of back and forth switchbacks instead of just a direct straight up. And I, I got the image that that's, that's what a lot of people's faith journeys are back and forth, up and down, indirect with doubts and questions along the way, rather than a simplistic, oh, once I didn't believe, then someone told me something and now I do believe. I just think it's more complex and rich. And I wanted to write a book for someone who's in the midst of that doubt, whether whether they're a Christian doubting their faith or whether they're a non-Christian considering it, uh, I wanted to write something to help them kind of move along. So, may I, and I love the heart that comes through so loud and clear in this book, and it's just filled with stories about people, and those are the ones that resonate so often with readers. But as you look at the terrain, because you've been involved in evangelism for a long period of time, where we are today versus where we were 20 years ago, did we see this kind of drift in the past? Did it go unidentified, or is the drifting now because people are thinking perhaps more seriously about things and flippant one sentence bumper sticker answers just don't cut it anymore. Yeah, I think this is unprecedented to a certain degree. I think people are doubting. Uh, there are more people doubting. They're doubting more vigorously. Um, our our whole culture shifts much more toward doubt. Um, I think I quote someone early on. It, it used to be that we we shifted toward faith, but we allowed for some doubt. Today we mm-hmm. shift toward doubt. And we wonder if faith even has a place. So we're we're immersed in skepticism and doubt and questioning and cynicism. So I do think um, I, I don't think this is oh we've been here before. I, I think this is pretty serious and mm. more rigorous for us as believers to connect with uh, people who are questioning. Um, But I also think our world is so much more disturbing than it has been for a very long time. And so I think people are hungrier. Uh, Mm. So it's a mixed bag of, I mean, there's some things that are really discouraging, but I think that uh, things are so bad in our world and so many things are up for grabs that I think a lot of people are wrestling on on a deeper level, which is a good thing. Yes. Uh, So I love the way you find a blessing in the assessment of where we're at, by the way, an assessment I agree with wholeheartedly. 
So to what do you, as you look, because you are you are observing the mission field on a regular basis, why do you think we have this uptick in the numbers of people who identify as none, no spiritual affiliation? Oh, boy, so many uh, reasons. But um, I, well, there's a lot of disturbing things going on in the world, and Christians do not always respond in the best ways. So I think that's one of the pieces of the pie. Um I think uh, we're we're just inundated with so much information through the internet. I mean, it uh, at any moment we could connect with a hundred different perspectives on any issue. Um, so so that just stirs up the environment of doubt and skepticism. Um, uh, boy, all of the reasons. I, 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 I guess I guess this is a good time for me to try to think some more of what <laughs> there's a whole lot of factors involved in that. You know what, Randy? Uh, so. I I think that that answer actually will be revealed as we look at some of the questions that you raise in the book, because if in fact these are the kinds of questions, the ones you talk about in your new book, Questioning Faith, that we don't know how to answer, can't answer, or go unanswered. That may be a reason why more and more people would categorize themselves as none. I had this question. And by the way, they're very good, thought-provoking, deep questions, and they're worthy of our consideration. But if we can answer, is that why people are backing away? Find out. Stick around for the course of this conversation. And then by the time we're done, I hope you get the book. Back after this. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We have the privilege of spending the hour with Randy Newman, Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. Wonderful, prolific author. His newest book is called Questioning Faith. There's an awful lot of that going around lately. And the subtitle gives you a hint as to what is covered inside the book, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. And what Randy does is every chapter starts with a question, a question that I think a lot of people in this up and down, this back and forth of the switchbacks, if I can use Randy's word, of our spiritual journey, the kinds of questions that people ask. Now, there's an implication. Before I go to this first question, Randy, there's an implication. Number one, the the presupposition is that we have made the choice to engage, either intentionally or unintentionally, that uh, conversation in the airplane with the passenger next to us or I'm going to invite a friend out to dinner after we see a movie, and hopefully that'll open up a conversation about deeper spiritual things. So either accidental or intentional, if I can put it that way. But the presupposition means that we are ready and prepared and willing to contend for the gospel and give a reason for the hope that resides within us. What I'm concerned about, and I'm, I've taken us up to the 35,000 foot before we get down on the earth again, but my question is if if the presupposition is not fulfilled, if there is not a passion in our heart to share the gospel, then this is going to be meaningless conversation for people who not only don't want to know what the questions are, but have no intentions of providing the answer. How do we go back to this idea that the Great Commission is still great and that there's a general call to all of us? Even if you don't have, quote, the gift of evangelism, there's a general call to all of us to share the good news. 
Well, I think we can ask God to help us. And I think we can pray that God gives us a heart for other people. I, I don't think we can manufacture it within ourselves, but mm -hmm. I think we can pray for it. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, the first book I wrote, Questioning Evangelism. I had a whole chapter on this about what, what if we don't care and the question of compassion. And I, I subtitled the, the chapter, What If I Don't Care That My Neighbor Is Going to Hell? And um, and then I wrote another chapter on anger and I subtitled it, What If I Really Want My Neighbor to Go to Hell? And mm. um, <laughs> people mm. have told me that those two chapters actually have been some of the most helpful. So I think I think we just need to be very, very honest with ourselves and with God. And if we if we tell God, you know, I, do, I don't care about lost people the way I know you want me to. Would you change me from the inside out? And I I have to pray that prayer from time to time. And I, I see that God answers that. So mm. you're exactly right. That's a that's a starting point. We need to be very honest about. Um, am I willing to engage in a conversation? I, I will say. I do want to encourage people, well, you know, you don't you don't have to dive into the deep end of the pool right away. You could get to know your neighbor and get to know them, find out where they're from, what do they like to do, what TV shows do they like to watch. What I mean, you don't have to start with, if you were to die today, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? I mean, that's a good question to ask perhaps later on, but um, I think that might help some people feel a little bit less intimidated. Yes. Oh. Yes. I, well, Randy, it's exemplified in your life and in reading your books because your whole approach towards sharing the gospel is like breathing. I mean, and sometimes even your answers surprise me and they're tutorial as well, which I, I just so appreciate. So you write early on in the book that people approach faith with a whole bunch of motives and not just one, which is very interesting. It made me stop and think about that. Um, why would one want to pursue the question of faith and to put it in more understandable terms, if God is real and how do I know him personally? So how do we understand what some of those motives might be? Yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, I was, uh, I'm glad I put it as the first chapter because I just think people need to be honest again with themselves of like, what, what am I bringing to this discussion? And we usually think, well, it's just, it's just intellectual questioning i'm just being an you know ob objective but we all we all bring a whole mix of motivations to everything we do and so for some people there's anger for some people there's there's um resentment or sadness or or discouragement for some people they've they've heard terrible things and they're angry um so i begin the book telling about christopher hitchens you know the famed atheist but he shared in a memoir that he wrote that his mother committed suicide and that he uh, failed to get to the phone when she called right before she took her life. And he has been racked with guilt ever since because he felt like if he just would have gotten to the phone, he could have talked her out of it. And he said on a, on a live NPR radio interview, he said, so I've been trying to write myself out of that ever since. Mm. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a what an incredible weight of burden and 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 grief and and guilt. Well, so he approached the whole topic with anger. I mean, he presented himself as just an intellectual with intellectual arguments, but there was a whole lot of anger underneath. And yes. um, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis said when he was looking back at his own conversion, he he, he remembered a time when he was an atheist. He said. Uh, I maintained that God did not exist, and I was angry at God for not existing. <laughs> so, um, 
So I, I just think I want to try to encourage people. Let's be honest. What what is it that you, that's involved in your connecting with this topic of faith? It may not only be intellectual inquiry. It may be a whole lot of other emotions, and some of them work against belief. And so I, I'm just asking people to look at a very full picture of their life and how they approach the whole topic of faith in God. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes experiences create biases and prejudice. By the way, just as a side note, I had the privilege of um, meeting up with Christopher Hitchens on a regular basis uh, on panel discussions on DC all the time. And I have to mm. tell you, Randy, he was one of the saddest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, um, uh. He, uh, he struggled, as you point out in the book, he struggled with alcoholism. And then when he got the diagnosis of esophageal cancer, my prayer constantly was, Lord, before he steps into eternity, may he lay down his anger and may he come to know you as Lord and Savior. And I, I would pray that his brother Peter, who started out, as you point out in the book, in the same exact position, but came to faith, that they would have had some heart-to-hearts before he stepped into eternity. But I was so struck by the brokenness. And wherever there's that kind of brokenness, you know that there's hurt and there's pain. And so what you're telling us is, sometimes just asking the Lord to give you insight. Where is this person coming from? Why is there a wall up about pursuing anything that has to do with starting a faith journey? And that offers us a particular insight to see where people are coming from. The book is fabulous. It's called Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. And what Randy does beautifully in the book is he weaves stories. So at the same time he's talking about Christopher Hitchens, he's talking about a young man by the name of Alex and how Alex and Christopher landed at markedly different conclusions on their journey. More with Randy Newman right after this. Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. It is the newest book by Randy Newman, Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. One of the questions you put forth is this, what if faith is inevitable, not optional? And you talk about the fact that everybody worships something. And in fact, you precede it with the question, does everybody worship? Put it another way, is faith inevitable? I I love that because I hadn't thought about what you and I might call among brothers and sisters, a conversation about idols in people's lives is a form of worship. Break that down for us. Well, I think God created us to be worshipers. Now, he created us to worship him, uh, but but we are going to worship uh, whether we want to or not, whether we, whether we say, oh, I'm a person of faith or I'm not a person of faith. Everyone worships something. Every, everybody clings to something or finds something that gives them a sense of purpose, even, this is ironic, even if it's the belief that there is no purpose, mm. uh, that, that, that actually works as a unifying factor in their life. So um, a whole lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, have articulated this. And again, in this book, I just wanted to say to people, look at your life, look at it carefully. What is it that is the most important thing in your life? And is that thing or that person or that relationship or that job or that cause, whatever, can it really handle uh, what life brings to us? Can it really give purpose and meaning in life, especially as we get older and we have the reality of we're not going to live on this earth forever? So um, again, I wanted to try to have people say, well, let me let me look carefully at my life thoughtfully 
and see what what is it that um, I'm putting my hope in. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, the, my favorite example is Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and he talked to her about, well, first he talked about water. And wouldn't it be great if there was a kind of water that when you drank it, you'd never be thirsty again. So he mm. starts in this very, I mean, pre, 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 pre evangelistic conversation. But then he talks to her about her husband and husbands and how those relationships haven't satisfied. They haven't provided the water that she was thirsting for. So I think we can say to people, what is it that we think is going to give us this satisfaction? And can it really do it? Can it really provide it? And we want to say to them, when those things disappoint, maybe they're just pointers. Uh, They're second things, not first things. And if we, we allow them to be second things, then we need to have God as the first thing. So that, that's what I was trying to do in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Well, and doesn't it, I mean, let me put it in another language. And that is, if we recognize, as Blaise Pascal said, that God-shaped void in the heart of every man, only relationship with him will fill it, then we are, as you just said, when I started, when I asked you the question, your first response was, God designed us as worshipers. So we're going to worship something or mm-hmm. someone. So sometimes when someone is questioning and their ups and downs on this uh, spiritual journey, they start by recognizing that you are worshiping something. You identify, for example, work as something we worship or identity Mm -hmm. as something we worship or control Mm -hmm. as something that we worship. So the point is, it's not bad that you're worshiping, but you might have an alienation of affections, if I can use a phrase out of the law. Maybe you were designed to worship someone else rather than something else. Right, exactly. And and I share my own story because I think that's that's a big part of my indirect journey of belief. Um I I worship music. I thought music was going to be the thing that satisfied ultimately. I thought either my performing of the music or listening to and being involved in the music that that was going to connect me to the to the uh the eternal, even though I may not have put those words to it. And every piece of music would have some level of satisfaction and some level of disappointment. And so I, again, it was C.S. Lewis that helped me see, oh, wait a minute. If maybe those things are just pointers, maybe those things are secondary. And so then when I realized that music was not a very good God, but it's a very good gift (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it points to the giver of the gift, God himself. And and then music is more enjoyable because I'm not expecting it to be salvific. <laughs> I'm, mm-hmm. I'm receiving it as a gift. And the same is about so many things, about art, beauty, relationships, a job even. I mean, there's all sorts of things that when we, when we don't look to them to be ultimate, um, they're wonderful, delightful gifts but not designed to be the object of our worship, as you say, because so often that's where the dissatisfaction comes, because eventually those things that are gifts were not designed designed initially to be worshipped, and so you're going to end up empty-handed eventually, right? Yeah, and and then it's it's crushing. I mean, if you you want, I don't know, a concert or a person or a job or something to be your all-in-all, your everything— Oh, I mean, the disappointment is is colossal, and uh, and and there are so many ruined relationships and very very unhappy people who are tremendously successful in their career. I mean, they're they're at the top of their career and they're kind of cynical and yeah 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 because 
because the job or the accomplishment or the whatever couldn't carry that kind of freight uh, that they were hoping it would. Um, so seeing it as a secondary thing is actually a liberating thing. Mm. Randy Newman's got a brand new book out. It's called Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. By the way, let me point out, and this comes through loud and clear in Randy's book, that this isn't just for you and me to figure out how we might approach some of these questions that people have when they've got these back and forth on their journey. But it's also specifically for someone who is on that journey right now and is in the midst of the doubting and the questioning. This book is to get you to think about deeper things. That's exactly why Randy wrote it. So again, it's called Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. More with Randy Newman right after this. important election cycle, you deserve to have a reliable place where you can turn for a Christian perspective on current events. In the Market is your home for dependable, up-to-date commentary. When you become a partial partner, your monthly gifts help In the Market stay on the air so we can continue to provide clarity of thought and biblical application. Become a partial partner today. Call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Randy Newman is with us, Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. His newest book, out of many he's written, is called Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through the Terrains of Doubt. And it's replete with personal stories of people who have had these interesting journeys, asked some of these big questions about faith. And this book is written to encourage people, just like the ones mentioned in the book, on their faith journey as well. But I also think for those of us who are not in a season of doubt. It helps us be better prepared to contend for the faith, to give that reason for the hope that resides within us. Randy, one of the things you brought up in the book, and I'm sure it would have been off-putting to some people, is that um, the old saying, and I talked about the bumper sticker mentality before, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that the times have gotten far more complex. And so we really can't give um, 100 level answers in some cases anymore. We really have to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it, because we have a world that's asking bigger and bigger questions. So the idea that absolute certainty isn't necessary, the bumper sticker mentality says, God said it, I believe it, that's it, period, end of statement. (laughs) And you say there has to be room for this. I don't have 100% certainty. I have doubts. And strange of all places, you actually take us to the scriptures to say that there were people who doubted as well. So tell me about that. Well, um, I think I've met quite a few non-believers, non-Christians, who think that if you become a Christian, you can never have doubts. So you have to be 100% certain, absolute, you know, no questions, no doubts. And I just don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's what the human brain can, can grasp. I think that's a very... I don't know, arrogant view of our intellect that we could, we could, you know, never have any questions. But I think they've heard that from a lot of people. In fact, I've talked to non-Christians who say they were told, oh, stop asking questions. Stop mm-hmm. asking so many questions. If, if you just believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he'll take care of, he'll take away all your doubts and all your questions. I just don't think that's, that's I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. And yes. I don't think it's realistic according to, to uh, uh, our, our own experience. I mean, even John the Baptist, you know, had, 
you know, he, he, at one point he proclaimed so boldly, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then later he sends a message and, and it's like, wait a minute, did I get the wrong guy? Um, <laughs> are you the one or should we expect someone else? So if even John the Baptist had doubts and if even Paul could tell us in 2 Corinthians 4 um, that we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but mm-hmm. not despairing, that that should allow for some amount of question and wrestling and doubt. And so I, I think that's a really important thing to say to a non-Christian of, listen, I I don't think you're ever going to get absolute 100% certainty, but I think you can have a very high level of confidence mm-hmm. that this is true and that this makes more sense than other perspectives. And I, I think for some people that just gets them to, oh, maybe I need to reconsider this. Maybe... Mm. Maybe I can have faith even if I have some questions and some doubts. And so I I regularly tell people, oh, I, I still struggle with doubts. Yeah. I, I, I've never been 100% sure. Usually I'm in the 90s, you know, 90s, high 90s. Um, <laughs> on really bad days, I drop down into the 80s. And um, uh, that, has, that has helped, I think, some people go, okay, wait a minute, maybe I need to rethink this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you write about that in the book. You talk about having a conversation with someone where you said that you weren't 100% certain all the time. And, it, and as I read that, I thought, Randy just allowed some breathing in the room. You mean, you mean it's okay to, to, to have these doubts? Well, what do I do with the statement of Scripture says, that says, I believe, help me in my unbelief? So, uh-huh. be, And then you've juxtaposed this, and you've said, take the word out of this idea of certainty instead, and instead put in the word confidence. Mm-hmm. I, I loved the change of the semantics on that, because the Bible reminds me that it is with confidence that I can believe what I read in the Word. So talk to me about juxtaposing the word confidence with the word certainty. Well, um, uh, by the way, that's not my original idea. I'm pretty sure that was Leslie Newbegin, who who wrote a whole book called uh, A Proper Confidence. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I got the idea from him, and that was so very helpful for me. So I figured probably helpful for other people. But I, I think once you once you make that shift of it doesn't have to be 100% certain, it can be confidence. Well, then I think the Christian faith has a very high level of confidence, very high. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we've got some very, very high level confidence that Jesus really was who he said he was and that he claimed that he said the things that the New Testament says he said and that he really did rise from the dead. So it's not like, oh, well, we can't be sure of anything. Well, okay, we can't be sure, but boy, it's it's far better than the cynicism and the doubt that that permeates our culture. And it's it's got a lot of very good substance to it and and coherence. I talk about coherence yes, in there. Yes. That it that these beliefs that we have as Christian beliefs, they cohere, they make sense of the world that we're in far better than a view that says, oh, we're just a total random accident. Really? Why is there so much beauty in the world? And why do I Mm, love mm. listening to Rachmaninoff so much? And why do people wait in very long lines to look at Van Gogh paintings? Um, There's something about beauty that makes me think it's more likely that we live in a created world by a creative God who loves beauty and diversity and color (laughs) And, and a bazillion different varieties of flowers. Um, 
uh, well, you know, I can't be absolutely certain, but boy, it sure makes a whole lot more sense mm, that we're mm. in a world with a created by a God who loves and delights in beautiful things. Well, that's one of your questions, the question of pleasure. And the question is, what if there's more to beauty than meets the eye? So it really is an interesting question. And in some people, they might say, well, it's a circular question. It just goes round and round and round. Was Why was beauty created? Why do we create beauty? Why mm -hmm. does beauty speak back to the recipient, the music, the art, the nature in and of itself? So is there a higher reason or purpose for beauty in our life? And does it, in the final analysis, reflect a creator and that that inspirational, that moment of awe, you and I as musicians know what that moment is like, where you had that, <gasps> I can't even catch my breath, where the aesthetic uh -huh. is just absolutely taking in Rachmaninoff or Beethoven or whomever happens to be the person that you delight in in terms of composition. When you have that moment, and I think, in fact, I've often said, Randy, just between you and me, so often I've said to the Lord, thank you for making us musical. I don't know what it would be like to have this human experience without music. I know its place in worship. I'm so thankful that we you know that the angels sang, so I'm pretty confident we're going to have music in heaven. Cliff Barrels uh -huh. has already said he wants to direct the choir anyway, so I think that position <laughs> has already been taken. But the bottom line is, <laughs> I think it's interesting that did God give us beauty so that that sense of awe would be stirred? So you'd ask the question, is there something more than this? You know, I did a study. This didn't make its way into this book, but it was in the backdrop. I did a study of all these books written about music and aesthetic. And written. several of them were written by atheists and people who didn't believe anything supernatural. And they would, they would argue for 200 pages, there's nothing more to this than just molecules. And, you know, our ears have a certain kind of frequency that is more pleasurable than others and whatever. But then when they got to the end of the book, they just couldn't help themselves. And they started saying these really lofty things things about music, about how it can transform our lives and it can give us purpose and meaning. And I mean, it almost sounded religious. And I thought, okay, that's one perspective. I, I think it's more likely and we can have a higher level of confidence that God created our world so that music would be so delightful that it would that it would make us cry. What my one of my granddaughters said to me not too long ago, when I hear that piece of music, I always cry because it's mm. so beautiful. Yeah, that's right, girl. Of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's supposed to. And uh, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a Christian song. It was just this really beautiful piece of music. And it brings tears to her eyes. And I, I love that. I do too. I do too. And again, that's that bigger question, the purpose of things around us. So we're gonna think more deeply about the world around us, that's an area, that whole idea of of God declaring his beauty. You can't tell me that the scientist is not in awe when he's looking at a microscope and he looks at a DNA helix and he goes, it just falls into place like that? Or is it awe that there's form and order and purpose? Or likewise, the one who looks into the stars and studies the stars for a living and goes, wait a minute, how is this all working? How do I see this majesty? It goes on and on and on more than I can possibly comprehend. I think it's God's way of just poking us and prodding us. I'm here. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, you will be found. Um, when we come back, and there's some, and again, I always tell my friends, particularly books that I love, <laughs> and I'm very grateful you can't see my copy right now, Randy, because to the um, shame of every librarian in our listening audience, I write in my books all the time. So I've got all kinds of markings on your book of things that I felt were worth going back and seeing again and rereading and underscoring. But Interestingly, I am going back and I'm reading C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain right now. It's one of my books in my private time to read. 
And you devote this question about the question of pain because this one is a biggie, excuse me, for people who have said uh, suffering. I don't understand how I can square suffering with a God that is allegedly good and so suffering. And this was also part of Hitchens' problem, by the way. The question of suffering will either keep people from the cross or will pull them away from the cross because they don't understand its place in a world where there is supposed to be a loving God. We'll tackle that when we get back. Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through the Terrains of Doubt. It's a very important book in these interesting times in which we find ourselves because a lot of people have questions and they have doubts and they're looking for answers to bigger questions out there. So if you're one of those people, this book was written specifically for you. It's also for you if you take seriously the mandate for us to go and tell because people are asking questions, big questions about their faith, like the problem of pain, one of the issues that Randy Newman discusses in his new book. He is Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. So um, I know you've uh, read and read and read and reread everything Lewis has ever written. How could you not working at the C.S. Lewis Institute? But, you know, it's interesting going back and walking through methodically Lewis's whole approach to the problem of pain. And it really is a tutorial for believers who somehow have gotten the idea that a good God and suffering are mutually exclusive. And I think to put it in the Cliff's Notes version for me, Randy, the epiphany on this subject for me was I wouldn't have eternal security if Christ hadn't suffered on the cross. So tell me what mm. good can come out of suffering. If there was no Calvary, I would have no eternity. It's just that simple. Mm. But now putting it in everyday parlance, this is a biggie. As I noted before, Hitchens was open about this. He could, in fact, he talked often about a five-year-old child who died of leukemia, one of his examples. And he would talk about the fact that a loving God wouldn't do that. He called it celestial child abuse when he talked about Christ dying on the cross for us. So where do we start with this problem of pain? Because it's really a question humankind has dealt with since we walked out of the garden. Well, um, I'm really glad you've said that uh, my book was written for both believers and Mm non-believers. I I wrote it for believers because I want to give them ideas of how they can talk to their non-Christian friends. But I wrote it for doubters and skeptics and non-Christians. In fact, I had a whole big long list of non-Christians I knew. I I wrote it on one of those really large post-it notes, and I had it on the wall in front of me as I was writing the book because I wanted to have them in mind. That's who I was writing for. And wow. where I want to say about this chapter on pain and suffering, what I, where I want to start with is, yes, this is a really big problem, but it's a problem for everyone. Everyone. Um, it's a problem for atheists. It's a very big problem for atheists. It's a problem for everyone. And what I wanted to say was that there's only been a handful of ways that we've ever been able to deal with this issue. All of them have some level of disappointment, for me at least, but I think the Christian answer is better, even if it's incomplete. There are still mysteries that we don't know, even as committed Christians, but it's it's the best by far of all of the incomplete answers. Mm. So so that's where I wanted to say to them, I again, I think I think a lot of non-Christians think that we as Christians, we're just very shallow and simplistic, and we just have short little here, here's here's the problem of evil. It's no longer a problem. No, right. it is a problem. It's a very difficult issue. You know, you, you get to the end of the book of Job, and there's still a whole lot of questions that are unanswered. Mm-hmm. And you think about Paul crying out to God 
to remove this thorn in his side. And God says, no, I'm not going to. And he doesn't give Paul a reason. He just says that my grace is sufficient. So I, I want to say to people, yes, this is a very big problem. It's difficult for anybody. Um, but there's a whole lot of worse non-solutions than the Christian answer. Again, it has its its incompleteness and some difficulties, but it's far better. Here, wait, let me try going in a different direction because I say this in the chapter and I say it whenever I get a chance to speak about it. We we think that what we need is an answer to the why question. Why does a good God allow evil and suffering? And we do, but we also need an answer to the how questions, plural. How do I get through it? How do I find hope in the midst of it? How do I keep going on in the midst of physical pain or disease? And that's where I think the Christian answer far outshines all of the others, especially the atheist's uh, secular view that has no resources whatsoever for the how questions. You talk about a friend who lost a loved one and her atheistic worldview offered her no comfort in what she was going through. And you talk about the moralistic view, the reframing view, the healing view, the secular view, and then the redemptive view, which is obviously the Christian perspective on all of this. So I loved what you said about it's the wrong question, not the why, but how. And that's where suddenly the dedication page of your book makes sense to me because you mm, dedicate mm. it. And I always love dedications because I know there's a story behind a dedication. So you talk about this individual and the struggle that he had. His name was George Burroughs. Tell his story. Well, sorry, it's Greg. Greg Burroughs. Greg, sorry, yes. Um, um, oh, this is such, it's such a painful and yet at the same time beautiful story. And I, I, I was glad to dedicate it to his memory. Um, Greg had an amazingly difficult life and a difficult heart condition. And he, he needed a heart transplant at the age of 25. That's ridiculously mm. young. And he got one and it, and it gave him 10 more years, but then he died at age 35. And uh, just so much pain, physical pain, emotional pain. And, and he wrestled honestly, deeply, um, loudly. <laughs> um, but, but he had a faith in Christ that gave him hope, even to the very, very end. Um, I, I, I was with him on his last day. And um, it wasn't a simplistic, shallow, oh, everything's wonderful. No, there's, there's deep, deep pain and grief and loss. And yet at the same time, there is also hope and strength and confidence. Um, so uh, he's, uh, I, I say at one point in the book, I mean, he had so many difficult things in his life. And, and I said, and I, I said, if, the, if anybody ever had a, a, a decent reason to tell God to get lost, it was Greg Boros. Mm -hmm. But he didn't. He didn't. He clung to the Lord because only there could he find hope and strength and joy and, and, and the confidence of eternal life. Um, so uh, that was a difficult chapter to write. I, I hope it's a difficult chapter for people to read because I don't want to give them shallow, simplistic answers to the most complex issues of life. Including this question of suffering, which is so tremendously huge as well. You end the book by offering us continual resources to dig deeper on all of this, but I want to underscore what you said before, because I think it's important to understand that in this, and I'm going to come full circle on this, 
If the data is correct, and I have every reason to believe that it is, that the numbers of people identifying as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, if they've walked away, we've talked multiple times on this program about deconstruction, which is just a cumbersome word for saying, I've got doubts and I'm walking away from the faith and I have multiple questions that I can't seem to get answered with some solidity. And they're profound questions, by the way. This is a book that's been written for you. If, you're, if you've walked away, if you've doubted, if you don't have 100% certainty, and as Randy pointed out, maybe confidence is a better word than certainty, then this is the book that you should read. These are very thought-provoking questions with very thoughtful answers in your back and forth on the switchbacks of your mountain climb of faith. It's a tremendous book, but I would have expected nothing less from Randy. Randy, again, Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. For the record, I also have a link to the C.S. Lewis Institute so you can learn more about what they're doing. Randy, it is my hope and my prayer that God will use this book in a powerful way to answer some of the questions that others have been perhaps too afraid to ask and have just stood in the shadows with their questions of doubt and fear and some shame because they don't have confidence in their faith. This book, I think, will eradicate all of that and more so that you can have your continued journey of faith. Randy, thank you. We'll see you next time, friends.